so much, Jordan and Steve and the team. So appreciate our worship. I love being at Calvary Baptist Church. And uh, when, I, when I travel and go different places and go to various churches, I, this is still my favorite home. I love to worship with you. It's just a great place, eh? Well, in life, things fail all the time. Whether it's a little spider that's hanging on to Pastor Steve's car with his with this string attached, or whether it's a laptop. I heard this past, this past week that actually this was not the only thing that failed in, in uh, Pastor Steve's life. I was uh, away and I was um, emailing Pastor Steve and I got an email back from Ida instead with uh, Steve's name on the bottom of it. And it said, uh, John, my, my laptop just failed. And um, it crashed and apparently the motherboard went on it. And just failed and lost, you know, all that time and everything. And he's very, very, uh, very good, though, that he didn't lose all the files because he's going away to Africa here at the end of the month. And so uh, we're glad about that. Things fail all the time, don't they? These things have failed this week for you. And this, this past summer, we've been looking at the whole idea of trying to understand what we should invest our lives into. And a few Sundays ago, I began a series called Increasing Your Profitability, How to Invest in What Lasts. And uh, that's so important in these days when things are often failing us. We learned a few weeks ago, in that first week, was why the bubble burst. And maybe you have been blowing bubbles. You've been, in a sense putting um, your time and your energy and your money and your resources and to try to get ahead, to gain profit for ourselves. That's those bubbles. And the problem with bubbles is they often burst, and they always burst. Often we attempt to, to build profit for ourselves, and we do so by using our giftedness and our knowledge and our sacrifices, our personal costs to us. However, we find that in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, that those things fail us. And if you have your Bibles, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to start in verse 1. And uh, we found out in 1 Corinthians 13 that work alone doesn't profit. Love does. Work alone doesn't profit. Love does. So 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 1, it's not just a psalm, not just a, a psalm or a, a, a scripture that we should, should read and think about it. Wedding time, but we should think about this all the, all the time. First Corinthians 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. All that work, all that effort, doesn't profit. Work alone doesn't profit. Love does. And so then last week we tried to define what love really is all about. And we saw that there's constructive and destructive sides of love. Picking up in verse 4. It says, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. 
Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. We learned last week that we can sometimes let love and act in certain, what we think is love, act in in certain ways which we think is love, that they actually can be really dangerous. We think that maybe we can be jealous or we we can boast about our love. Anger and pride, those things actually are are not love. Those are very destructive things in our lives. We also realize that we cannot live up to the standard of love by enduring to, to love others in our own strength. Instead, love is a demonstration of the love of Christ in our lives. This love is demonstrated that when we're tempted to live for ourselves, we need to let go of that and actually follow the way of love. Last week I challenged you in verse... One of chapter 14, this phrase, follow the way of love. So how did you do? How did you do with that? The times you were tempted to kind of put yourself first, did you follow the way of love? I know I failed at times. And this is why I encourage you that you, you get back to memorizing the scriptures and knowing it and getting into relationship with others. Maybe it's joining a small group and and holding yourself accountable and saying, how can we live this out together? How can we strengthen one another? How can we follow the way of love? How can we really love one another? I encourage you to do that. Well, this past week, as I said, I was away, and um, I was actually traveling with my father, and uh, we were discussing our motivations, and we thought about this kind of illustration, if I could put it this way. If we were going to divide this church in two, okay? Dividing this church right down the middle here. And all the people on this side um, were able to demonstrate gifts of of miracles and being able to do miraculous things. They were able to heal people. They were able to uh, speak with great eloquence and be able to to describe how life really is and from God's word. Okay, that's all the people on this side. And if we're going to put on this side all the people that were able to, to forgive those who really hurt them and love those when they seem unlovable, which side would you want to be? The side with all the the gifts and all the abilities or the side where you have to do the the dirty work of of loving others? Which side would you want to be on? I think, think for being honest, most of us would like these these gifts, these publicly known gifts, wouldn't we? Which of you do you think makes the most difference, the lasting difference? The side with all the, the miraculous things that go on in our lives? Or the side where forgiveness and love reign? Well, we find in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, the answer to this question. It says, love never fails. Love never fails. Think about that for a second. Let that sink in. Love never fails. Why does love never fail? Well, love never fails because it's sourced in the character of God. It's sourced in the character of God. We find that in the scriptures that it says that God is love. And in fact, I like Psalm 63, verse 3. Here's a verse that I challenge you just to think about and let it, let it meditate throughout, throughout the day of your, each week that you think about this. It says, because your love is better than life. 
talking about God. Because God's love is better than life. Has that been your driving passion this week? The love never fails because his love is better than life. God's love for you will never fail. It's unending. You might be going through a very challenging time, a very difficult time, but God still loves you and he's there for you. Maybe you needed to be reminded of that. Maybe this is the first time you've ever heard this. Maybe this is the first time you've ever come to church. I want to tell you that God really loves you. His love never fails. God's love is better than life. His love never fails to overcome anything you're feeling, you're thinking, or pursuing in your life. Now, the great truth is, God's love can be transferred into our hearts, and it can flow out into other people's lives. And so we learn that love never fails, not just in how our relationship is with God, but also our relationship with others. Let's continue to read here in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 13. It says, Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Now, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put away childish ways behind me. Now we see, but a poor reflection is in the mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Let's pray. Father, I pray today that you would help us to understand what it means that your love never fails. There are people who are in desperate situations. In fact, all of us are, whether we realize it or not. Lord, there are, there are people here today who are one decision away from moral failure. Others who are one decision away from financial failure. Others who are one decision away from making such choices that there will be lasting consequences for all eternity. Lord, I pray that they would, they would understand. And I pray that I would understand your love more. That your love never fails. We pray this. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, God's love never fails. And I want us to talk about three ways that God's love never fails. God's love never fails in, first of all, our proclamation and our proclaiming God's messages. That's what it says in verse 8. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Now, that word prophecy um, has to do with proclaiming God's words. Most of us kind of think of prophecy. Okay, I have some kind of prophet where I, I'm able to predict the future. But prophecy is beyond that. It's foretelling God's truth. It's foretelling God's truth, his messages. Today, I want to remind you that when you act and share with love, your proclamation does not fail. When you proclaim Jesus, when you proclaim his word with love, it does not fail. Let's be honest. Some of us are not orators. We're not eloquent. We stumble over words and they don't come out of 
our mouths very easily. They kind of stick to the roof of our mouth. I know often I struggle with that. Some of us are not Scarly or Einsteins. But when I look out at this room, I see people who are able to win people for Christ because their proclamation, their prophesying, their foretelling God's message is done with love. And it's so contagious. And it overwhelms. And people want that love that they have. You actually love so much that people are drawn to you and they want to hear more about Jesus. Continue on in that. Love never fails. Love never fails when you share the truth of God's love lovingly. This does not mean that people will always believe the message that you're trying to proclaim. But they'll they'll be very much attracted to the love that you have. Now, in verse 8 it says, Where there are prophecies, they will cease. So, God's love never fails in our proclaiming and our prophesying though that prophesying will end and become ineffective and incomplete. That's what we've read. and It says there very clearly, where there are prophecies, they will cease. Why is that true? Well, think about it. Will we need to prophesy in heaven? Will we need to be able to, to tell the future? Will we need to be able to, to essentially foretell to an unbelieving generation what is, what is true? Absolutely not. There'll be no need to prophesy God's word with when everybody is saved and everybody is up there rejoicing with heaven, proclaiming his goodness. So prophesying only takes us so far, doesn't it? Love does not fail. Love never fails also in our serving God. We look at here in verses 8 through 11 that there's a number of times where it talks about tongues. And some of you are like, what are tongues? I, it says, where there are tongues, they will be stilled. I don't understand that at all. If you're new to, to the church or haven't been um, un, ever heard of that, tongues is the ability to be able to, to speak in a foreign language, to be able to communicate to another person the truths of God. And we find here really what the purpose of the gifts of tongues were. If you look at ver- chapter 14, we're going to see three purposes, okay? Um, first in verse 1. One and two. Follow the way of love, eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Then verse two. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to who? To God, it says there. So immediately I see that one of the things that tongue speaking does is it, it's, it's a prayer. It's a prayer. It's, it's speaking to God. And we find here that that's clearly what it says. It does not... Do we not speak to men, but to God? And so that's the first purpose, is for prayer. Another purpose of the gift of tongues is for edification. Look at verse 4, jump down to verse 4. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, he encourages himself, he helps grow and strengthens in his faith. But he who prophesies edifies the church. So he's making a comparison, the Apostle Paul is, between the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. So that's the second purpose. It's for edification, encouragement, growth. But I think the most important purpose of the gift of, of tongues is verse 22. It says this. Tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. 
Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. Now, last week we learned that there are both constructive and destructive sides of love. We can be jealous. We can be impatient. We can be unkind. Thinking that we're still loving, but reality, those are very destructive in our lives. And in the church at Corinth, they were doing the same thing. They were actually taking the gifts and the service towards other people, and they were destroying others. Verse 9, it says this. Paul makes this charge against them. So it is with you, unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? The Corinthians were using all these ecstatic gifts, the gifts of of tongues and things like that, and, and they were actually, instead of drawing people to Christ, they were repelling people from Christ. The Corinthians were, were very much like, I don't want anything to do with that church. It doesn't make any sense what they're doing. And that's a real problem. Because in reality, in that day, tongues were then for unbelievers, as we just read. I love what Dr. Leo Purser says. Um, he's a professor at Liberty Baptist Seminary. And he says this, why don't our Pentecostal friends use tongues for witnessing? This is how it was used in Acts 2 when the early church spoke in tongues in Jerusalem. And those who heard them speak in their own language wanted to know more. Peter then preached and explained the gospel. And 3,000 people repented and were baptized that day. See, tongues helped people go from confusion to clarity. And tongues are meant to be interpreted so that people will understand the gospel, understand God's message. It's not meant to prove my salvation. It's to present salvation to others. Now somebody say, John, uh, hello, are you in a Baptist church? We don't, we don't do this. We don't believe in tongues. Well, here's this my, my personal view, Okay. I believe that tongues um, can be used in certain situations so that God is not limited. If there's some, some place, let's say in some tribe, maybe we'll show a picture of here, and there's some tribal group where uh, we see that, that, that uh, a person does not know the gospel and there's no, there's no written word in that person's own language, God may use tongues to speak to that tribe. God may use tongues to be able to clearly communicate because that missionary or that person does not know their language. And God supernaturally works in that way. I think that God does that in rare occasions. I don't want to limit God. However, I believe for us that God uses the written word of God to clearly communicate to us. We have God's word. We do not need to go from a lack of understanding. We're able to understand and read it for ourselves. Now we Baptists might tend to think that tongue speaking is, is the real problem. However, we'd be just as guilty if we thought this because we would be full of pride. The problem for the Corinthians was their proud and selfish hearts. Which is the same problem for us when we don't love, isn't it? Love never fails, though. Love never fails when we're motivated by love. And so whatever gift you have, my challenge today is that you would, you would use it in a way and be motivated by love for others. Use that gift out of being motivated by God's love. 
We find, though, in, in 1 Corinthians 13, that this makes it pretty clear, that where there are tongues, they will be stilled. They will cease. Our gifting is limited and temporary. There will be no need for spiritual gifts once the church has been built up and, and brought to maturity. And we get to see Jesus. I think that's what it clearly says in Ephesians chapter 4. Where it says that we're supposed to, we've been given gifts, each one of us, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So we find out, first of all, that love doesn't fail in how we proclaim God's message. It doesn't fail in our serving of God and serving others. But we also find out that God's love doesn't fail in knowing people and the situations of life. Look at verse 8 again. It says, where there is knowledge at the very end, it will pass away. Now what's that talking about? Well, it's like when you experience and understanding and come to a conclusion about a, a certain situation or person. In your life. You intuitively know what's going to happen. You can kind of foresee it and you're like, I see that that's going to happen. I know it. I just know it. The word for knowledge that Paul uses here is focused on experiential knowledge. And not just head knowledge. It's not just intellectual knowledge. It's based on our experience. It could kind of be like, um, I wasn't here for this, but I heard that there was a softball game this past uh, Tuesday. And uh, there was the, uh, the, I'll call them the Legends softball team, the, the team of yesteryear that used to bring home a hall of trophies and won all the time. And they took on the young adults. And uh, from what I heard, it was a very back-and-forth game. But in the very end... Wisdom, experience prevailed, right? 1714, the old guys. So, experiential knowledge is beats usually intellectual knowledge, not just knowing about the game, but being able to experience and having years to fall back on. Experiential knowledge often gets us further ahead in life than just intellectual knowledge. You can pile your brain with all sorts of information. You can become a Wikipedia, a personal Wikipedia kind of person. But it's really about living that out, that knowledge that you've gained. Paul might also be talking about here, when he talks about where there's knowledge, it will pass away. The gift of knowledge. That's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8. It's in, within the context. And it says this, to one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. To another the message of knowledge by the means of the Spirit. So that message of knowledge, that gift of knowledge. Here's what one man, Kenneth Boa, how he describes that. The gift of knowledge is to discover, analyze, and systemize truth for the benefit of others. With this gift, one speaks with understanding and penetration. The word of knowledge can also involve supernatural perception and discernment for the purpose of ministering to others. James McDonald describes this, that he's often able to discern 
what kind of vice, what kind of sin, what kind of struggle a person is going through before they come to him. And that might be an example of the gift of, of knowledge. Others describe that as the ability to be able to, to tell whether a person is demon-possessed, whether they're influenced by evil spirits. What I want us to understand is that love never fails and we know something. And yet we choose not to show off our knowledge to impress others, but to be concerned about what others are concerned about. Um, for example, look at this guy up here, Ken, Ken Jennings. Remember him? He was the Jeopardy champion. He won 74 consecutive times in Jeopardy. Won over $2.5 million. Can you imagine that? And yet, I think he'd probably have a hard time if all of a sudden a question came up and he decided, I'm going to let another person figure that out for himself. He'd always want to share. He'd, he'd always want to share his truth. Now, I don't know Ken personally or anything like that, but I'm just guessing because this... Trivia spewed out of him. Knowledge spewed out of him. My question to you is, are you able to guard your tongue when you know something that someone has recently discovered and is excited about it? When they come to you and say, oh, you know what, I really learned this. And you know what, I really want to tell you about this new thing. And you're like, yeah, I already know that. Remember anyone like that? Oh, it's so disheartening. My father, he bites his tongue a lot, but I know every time I'm talking to him, he's like, Learned that 30 years ago. You know, thanks, you know. <laughs> he, that's, what, that's what we need to be careful of. In contrast, we see people in our church who help our children, help all of us, maybe who are younger in the faith, to grow and to understand and have this discovery of who God really is. That's like so important. Let me give you another illustration of what it means, the difference between gaining knowledge about someone and actually knowing them. Now, I've been married for over 13 years now, and um, I've been called to the supper table many times. And uh, Lori would often say, supper's ready, supper's ready. And um, it just recently, this is how long it takes me, this is how at times how really numbskull I am, you know. Um, I just learned recently that sometimes I would, uh, when Lori means come to the table. She just doesn't mean, come, the supper's ready. The food is on the table. It's time to eat. When Lori says, the supper's ready, what she means is she wants me to come and help put on the drinks and get all the kids situated and cut up all their food. Okay? And she's not doing that just because she needs help, which is part of the reason, but it's also because she wants feel like we're a team. Like we're in this together. It's the difference about just not knowing about that supper's ready versus knowing Lori. And when she calls, that means that she wants me to join the team, to know her more, to be a part of her life. It really means loving Lori. And so that has gone, continued to go through my mind as I'm pouring those drinks. The reason why I'm pouring these drinks is because I need to love Lori more. I hope I can do that more, babe. Now, the problem is, is our knowledge is really limited, isn't it? That's what it says. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. See, knowledge pursues discovery. Love embraces mystery. 
okay? We might pursue learning, try to learn new things and discover new things. And, and often we want to know more about God. We want to know about his plan. We want to know how everything's going to work out. But in contrast, when we love, love never fails. We can embrace the mystery. We can be satisfied with the lack of full explanation. We can trust God knowing that he loves us. And so the mysterious, even those, those very troubling things in life, can be accepted because we know that God loves us. We can trust him with this, that he's actually doing good all the time. If I could summarize it this way, I want us to remember that our understanding of life and God is blurry. That's why it's not just about knowing and packing our brains with all sorts of knowledge about God, but it's really loving him. The Corinthians, in that time that Paul wrote this, it was famous for its mirrors. However, a few Christians would have been able to afford a mirror of good quality. We see a picture of our mirror right up there now. The ancient one. And that's why Paul says in verse, verses uh, 11 and 12, When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish ways behind me. Now we see, but a poor reflection is in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Some of your translations might actually say, for now we see through a glass darkly. However, mirrors were not made of glass back then. Why? Because they just didn't have glass. They were made of polished metal. Even more importantly, in Greek literature, the the mirror symbolized clarity and self-recognition. The word there is what we get, the word enigma. It's a riddle. It's not fully understand. We can only see part of it. And this doesn't mean that God is impossible to know, but that we will never be able to fully, totally figure out God and get him into our minds. In fact, if we could, he would no longer be God, would he? If we could pack everything to know about God into our minds, we'd be God. Our understanding of life and God is not a distorted image that we have in Christ, but an incomplete one. I want to give you three illustrations to kind of bring this home to you. First of all, let me take a picture of you, okay? Let me take a picture of you as a group today. See if I can get you all in. Okay, I might have to take two. We'll take the loving side over here. Okay, we'll take the, 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 uh, the really spiritually gifted people on this side. Okay, all right. There we go. Now... I'll show you this picture in coming weeks, but um, that picture is a snapshot of this very moment in time, isn't it? Of what you look like at this very moment in time. How much does that really say about you? Not, not very much at all, does it? It's just a snapshot. Our knowledge is very limited. Um, maybe we could think of it. Uh, we could think of it this way. Um, let me see here. I think I have something else behind here. Yeah, I do. Um, let me pick on one of my favorite. Favorite of, of our deacons. All of our deacons are my favorite, but here's one of the guys who helps me out. I'll just uh, bring this down here. Pedro? 
I want you to take a look in this and see what you see. Gorgeous. Wow. Okay, you can sit down. You can sit down. Gorgeous. Wow. It looks like me. I need a shave, but... Uh, um, Gorgeous, eh? This mirror only tells me that Pedro, well, thinks that he's good looking, but also that, uh, you know, Pedro, I, I know from what I'm speaking to him, he's from Mexico. But my, limited is, my knowledge is very limited by looking in this mirror, isn't it? There's lots of things that I know about Pedro that maybe some of you don't know. Uh, maybe you don't know that Pedro's actually studying uh, through correspondence at Moody Bible Institute to learn more about the Bible. Maybe you didn't know that Pedro um, was saved in Mexico and that he was baptized. I baptized him. That mirror won't tell you that, will it? Uh, that mirror won't tell you that Pedro works as an IT, in IT, information technology. That mirror won't tell you that Pedro has two sons and beautiful wife, Gloria. So I'm sure if you actually held that mirror up to Gloria, that would be the more beautiful <laughs> portrait, right? Yeah? The mirror is limited, right? We see through a glass darkly. We see but a poor reflection is in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. It's really the difference between a picture and a portrait. And being able to understand that the God loves us so much that he wants us to not just base our life just on that limited knowledge but on fuller things, and to pursue him. This past week I said I was away. And um, I uh, used Skype. Does everyone know what Skype is here? Okay. Skype is free video conferencing that you can use. It's a software program. And uh, I was away from Lori and my four kids. And I think it's a perfect picture of what, what Paul's saying here. We would get on Skype and... At times, you know, the picture became very blurry. And it was so great to see Lori's beautiful face and the kids. And I love seeing it. But it was blurry. It was limited. We couldn't see fully one another. But let's say, yesterday, when I finally made it home, whoo, so much better, right? We got to see each other face to face. That's the goal of all this. It's not just knowledge about our lives. It's actually pursuing love that we might know one another face to face. Our understanding of life and God is blurry. But it won't be someday. Did you see what Paul says? But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Now what does that mean? The perfection comes and the imperfect disappears. Well... Many have thought that Paul was talking about the end of the canon or the end of the writing of all of the books of the Bible. I don't think that really makes sense because Paul didn't even realize he was writing the scriptures when he was writing it. Well, that I would throw out. Some of thinking that um, he, was, uh, he was talking about Jesus himself there when the perfection comes. I don't think that... Though Paul never loses sight of Jesus in this passage and the love that, that God gives, I don't think he's talking about perfection there in reference particularly to Jesus because he uses a neuter, a neuter pronoun, a neuter um, article, a noun there. And so that would 
talk about something that's a thing, not a person. Couldn't be Jesus himself. I believe Paul's really talking about essentially the end of this world. And we live in the eternal state, the eschaton. The point is that someday, all of our imperfect speech, all those times you stumble over your words, don't know what to say, all of our thinking, all of our reasoning, our understanding, like we do when we're little children, will come to an end, and we will finally know Jesus face to face. How do we get to that perfection? How do we get to that place where we actually get to see Jesus face to face? We must know what has been revealed. And today, God has revealed through his word to you what the truth of this. That God loves you. That he sent his son Jesus to die for you. That he wants to have a a new relationship with you. A life that's built on love. Because love never fails. That is the truth. That's how you get to that state of perfection. Does it mean that we should not still use our gifts and never pursue knowledge and try to learn more about God's word? Of course not. It says here clearly, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 14, follow the way of love, eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. We're continuing to try to serve others. That's mentioned a number of times in this passage of 1 Corinthians 14. So it is with you, since you are eager to have spiritual gifts. Verse 39 of chapter 14. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. We're supposed to eagerly desire those gifts, but those gifts serve under our love for Jesus. They're motivated by our love for Jesus. So, let's take it down to what we really need to do and live out this week. This week. We need to understand that God's economy is not like our economy. It's not just about working harder. It's actually about loving more. And if we could use this illustration that the spiritual economic stimulus package that God is all about is pouring more love through you to others. My prayer has been that you would do that. And so how do you do that? This week, I'm expecting that you're going to read God's word. You're going to to read and you're going to um, try to learn more about him. If you don't know how to do that, you can come see me afterwards. I want to share how to actually read God's word. Maybe a plan for you. Okay? Read God's word. But when you do so, don't just say, what can, I, what can I learn about myself? What can I learn about my situation in life? The first thought you should have when you open up God's word is, Lord, how can I, how can I love you more as I read this? How can I, how can I pursue a more love? with you as I read this. That's the first thing. Another way of, do, of, uh, of showing love never fails and pouring more love out of you is this. I want when you use your giftedness, instead of saying, how can I get more influence in my life and how can I be able to, to uh, have more people look at me? I want you to do the opposite. I want you to understand that love never fails. Pursue that. And what we should do is we should actually say, Lord, how can I love you? How can I love this person more as I'm using my gifts and I'm serving them? So, that's two ways. A third way is this. I want you to not only read God's word, serve more, 
but I want you, when you're pursuing your knowledge of him, and you're telling others about Jesus, don't just think, okay, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to win more people to Christ, and I'm going to be the one who's going to evangelize. I'm going to be the great evangelist. I'm going to be the next Billy Graham. Instead, you need to say, how can I love this person as I'm telling them the truth? How can I love this person? How can I love you, God, as I love this person? So share the gospel in such a way that you would do that, that you would, you would pursue love. What we really need to do is we need to downsize, downsize our giftedness and our abilities and our knowledge. Instead, we need to upsize our love for Christ and know him more. Let's pray. Father, help us to, uh, help us to downsize us and to upsize you in our lives. Help us to, to understand what really lasts in life. And love is what really lasts. Profits us nothing if we do otherwise. All those other things are going to cease. They're going to go away. Some of us here today are struggling, struggling with that. But I'm asking, Lord, that you would help us to pursue love. Because love never fails. Thank you for love failing us. Your word clearly says that when we have been faithless, you have been faithful. Thank you for that truth. Thank you for never failing. We pray this. In Jesus' name, God's people said. Amen.